0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast.
1: Your journey. Your
2: journey. Your your journey. journey, Your journey starts here. Here.
1: Good afternoon. And welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's annual King Commemorative Lecture. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and on behalf of the Pratt Library's acting director, board of trustees and directors, and staff, we are very pleased to have you here this afternoon to hear our guest speaker. Our speaker will be introduced to you by Dr. Lawrence Brown, assistant professor of public health at Morgan State University. Dr. Brown?
0: Good afternoon. Dr. Julia Malveaux is an accomplished scholar, an economist, and author, a television and radio commentator who has maintained academic affiliation since she left full-time academia in 1992. She served as the 15th president of Bennett College for Women from 2007 to 2012. She ran her own award-winning multimedia production company, Last Word Productions, for more than a decade, and recently founded a 501c3 economic education. Dr. Malvo has been published widely in the popular press, does academic writing and teaching and is involved in aspects of academic leadership. In 18, excuse me, in 1989, Dr. Malvo prophetically wrote, "At this moment, the single most powerful aspect of the economy is the way urban areas have been disconnected from funding streams. Cities are getting less money from the federal government, and consequently, they are cutting budgets for health, for social services, and for the arts. Mayors say they have no money to deal with the growing set of needs. And though their constituencies grouse at spending patterns, they are not simply pleading poor. In the urban continuum, we are fighting to fund HIV services at the same time we're fighting to inoculate the homeless from the flu virus. People are asking how we prioritize. This is ultimately political. If you care about HIV, if you care about the kind of popular culture or other culture that will be funded, if you care about the dissemination of culture, then you need to care about who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You need to care about getting fools out of the White House out of the Senate, out of Congress. You need to care enough, be politically involved enough to write letters daily, weekly to elected officials telling them the programs you need, you think need to be funded. So if Dr. Malveaux was that on point in 1989, imagine how accurate her words are today in her new book, Are We Better Off?, race, Obama, and public policy. She uses two wonderful metaphors to describe the ambivalence of thought towards President Barack Obama, the parable of the elephant and the kaleidoscope. Both of these metaphors offer a deep nuance often missing in the discussion of the 45th president. Now, with less than a week to go before Donald Trump becomes the next president of the United States, it is a perfect time to hear the wisdom and insights offered by today's speaker. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please join me in warmly welcoming to Baltimore, Dr. Julian Malvo? Thank you so
3: much, My appreciate it. Well, good afternoon everyone. First of all, I want to thank you for coming out. It's kind of nasty outside, um, so I'm glad that you were able to make it. And Secondly, I want to thank the staff of the Historical Society and of the museum for the many courtesies that have been extended um, as they invited me. So thank you. It's uh, been been an honor. And then, of course, I forgot that I wrote that in 1989. but you know, I've been writing a weekly column. I've been writing as long as I could hold a pen. Um, you know how... Mean parents make you write lines when you did something wrong? Like, I will never steal my sister's soap again. Well, what I would do is write like one page of lines. She would usually make me write a thousand. I write, then I write short stories, and then I write one page at the end. And the middle will be short stories about the mean mother who made the brilliant child uh, <laughs> write repetitive lines that had no intellectual value. I think I was about eight. And she she would never read them. And then one day she 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 said, "Oh, you've been really fooling me, haven't you?" I was like, uh yes, ma'am." She said, "Okay, we have got to find something else. Got to punish you another way." Blessedly, it was a house cleaning. Um, but in any case, um, so I've been I've been writing a weekly column since 1980. Um, first with the Black Press in San Francisco, and then with King Features, and now back with NNPa. So sometimes I'll go back and look at something and say, "I wrote that." So thank you for the reminder, and unfortunately, not a whole lot has changed. I mean, we've oscillated, but we haven't changed, and that's been kind of the challenge. It's also an honor, of course, Anytime I love talking about Dr. King because I love us looking at Dr. King differently. What tends to happen around Dr. King's birthday is everybody wants to whip out, I have a dream. You know, I have a dream that people will be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. But in that very same speech, he said, we have come to the nation's capital to cash a check. And that check was marked insufficient funds. Just imagine if we say cash to check as often as we said, I have a dream. Just imagine, just think about it. Imagine if, you know, every Monday you're going to see ads, commercial people. We, too, had a dream. And they'll have a little silhouette of Dr. King. Um, Some stores will have King Day sales, and they will probably sell stuff that Dr. King wouldn't or couldn't buy. We all know that the $54,000 that he earned when he won the Nobel Peace Prize was given right back to the Southern Christian Leadership Council, so he didn't pocket the money. He didn't keep it. What he did was plowed it into the movement. So when we know all that, then we also have to think about, what Dr. King's impact would be if we focus on the economic part of his message as opposed to the social part of his message. Because the economic part of his message was always central to his message, even though as it was intertwined with three things, with with racism uh, and anti-racist work, with anti-poverty work, and with anti-militarism work. Those were the three what he called the triple evils that he talked about all the time. And we tend to forget about that. So we have this, these kumbaya moments, and we believe that Dr. King was simply a dreamer. I mean, when we say I had a dream, in my mind, what we're really saying is like, dude slept a lot. In other words, um, the dream was combined with action. You know, it was combined with a, a very brilliant vision. See, what, what Dr. King was is he was a disruptive and creative force his creative disruption and it's a kind of disruption that we really need to think about now that we really need to think about now because there is a need for disruption. Now, I don't care if you're D or R, I really don't, but if you're in love with Trump, you might want to leave right about now. I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't want anybody to leave, but, um uh, but, um, I, I was in uh, grand, what was I, Battle Creek last night and a gentleman, uh, I, I have to admire him for his patience, uh, sat there, and he was making faces. So I don't know if he didn't like the color I was wearing or if something I said really k- hit him the wrong way, but he was making faces. Looked like he was in pain, but he didn't say anything, and he didn't ask the first question, but he asked the last one. He said to me, well, I, f- I feel so sorry for you. How do you think you live in the age of Trump? And I said, well, black people live through so many other things that so this is just another thing. I said, I imagine that my cursing will increase exponentially um, and I said I'm certain that uh, antagonism will rise I said but I'm also certain that my activism will increase exponentially and that I will be an encourager for people but so if, 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 if you're expecting a pristine conversation about Mr. Trump, who I just have been able now to say Mr. Trump, I was calling him chump forever until someone pulled me aside and said that it was undignified um, for a former college president to do that to the president. I'm like, oh, all right, I'll try uh, <laughs> I'll try to do better, and then I went back and called him Trump again. Um, but anyway, I I merely say mention him because when we talk about all the challenges we face, this is one of the challenges. And I also want to mention him because I want us to contrast Dr. King's birthday in 2009 with Dr. King's birthday this year. In 2009, we were celebrating the inauguration of President Barack Obama. We were, if you were privileged enough, and I was very blessed to get tickets to the actual inauguration and you didn't get stuck in the tunnel, uh, which thousands of people did. You were sitting outside with those things they wear to, um, I'm not a sports fan, but, you know, you put those things in your feet when you go to football games. I had foot things, I had hand things, I had three hats, two pair of pants, and a a politically incorrect fur coat, and I still was cold, um, as was everybody else. Um, But we were there, we were happy, we were jubilant. I was not at all um, delusional. Um, and, it, and and I hope you will purchase my books, which are available later. Uh, but if you read my book, I mean, my book has, raises a question. Are we better off? Um, and the answer when the book closed up in 20 uh, late 2015, early 2016 was no. Because the good economic numbers have just come out this year. We just got the numbers about the poverty in, in, in September of 2015. We just got, we now see the unemployment rate at an all-time low. Uh, we've seen growth. You know, Mr. Trump campaigned by saying we didn't have growth, but we have had growth. And the growth has been between th- 2 and 3%, which is not extremely robust, but it's on line for what we should have as a mature industrial economy. If we compare our economy to that of any of our allies, we're doing much better than they are. So President Obama did turn the economy around, but at one co- what cost? As I, I talk in the book about the fact that he jogged away from race. Jogged. Not ran, but jogged. He didn't want to talk about it. Uh he got spanked when he had the beer summit, which I thought was crazy. I actually wrote a piece called Invite Pookie for a beer. Uh because, you know, Skip Gates and the and the policemen, uh, they were a lost cause. But Pookie, the seventeen year old young brother who got you know, who gets stopped for nothing. It'd be very symbolic to have brought a group of those young men you know to the White House, and that of course didn 't happen um, still and, and I had the the immense privilege of interviewing President Obama in two thousand and four when he was running for the Senate and It really was an immense privilege um, he was new on the scene, that his people were handling him really carefully, and that should have been my first clue. Um, they were handling him really carefully, so they were vetting everybody and before you could get an interview. And this was at the Democratic Convention. Of course, I begged, borrowed, i I, you know, if white people have six degrees of separation, black people have three. And educated black people have two. If two black people start talking, say, who you know? Who you know? You can find some, well, you start with, what college did you go to? Then that's it. So, you know, I knew Derek Bell, who had been a very good friend. um, And I knew Charles Ogletree. And so I had to call those brothers and say, make him give me an interview. So he did, and we're having a great time. And, of course, by the time we played Who You Know, they had told me I had 15 minutes. But it took us 20 minutes to play Who You Know. So then his guy just sort of did like that, like, okay, you know, run with it. So I, we're, we're doing well, and I've got, you know, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes in the can. And I said, well, since Derek Bell was your professor, what do you think about reparations? My man said, turn that camera off. <laughs> His boy, he said, turn that camera off. And then he turned to my cameraman and he said, Is that camera off? <laughs> and I said, Oh, I guess we don't want to talk about reparations. And he said, It's a silly concept and it's never going to happen. Of course, that's how he was being managed. And, you know, so I was not delusional that he was going to be president revolutionary. He's a product of a flawed democratic process where people constantly are fall by the wayside as they move up in public office as they become more extreme so every until this most recent whatever most of your people were relatively centrist i mean i thought we probably would have ended up i i figured that people were kind of sick of clintons and so i didn't think we'd get hillary even though i worked for her but i just said it's going to be hard for a whole lot of white men and some black men too to see a white to see a woman in the oval office and 13% of african american men did vote for mr trump but um i thought if we had a republican it would be somebody that was relatively inoffensive like shrub you know i mean he wasn't inoffensive but he was on the scheme of things now he's positively Liberal. Um, but, um, you know, liberal. But, when you generally you look at that as those 17 people who were running for the Republican nomination. Most of them were not outside the mainstream of public thinking. I mean, they were left of, some of them were uh, pro-life as opposed to pro-choice. Most of them want a smaller government than we have now. But you didn't have some notion of having someone who doesn't believe in climate change in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency or someone who doesn't believe in the minimum wage in charge of the Labor Department. So you didn't have anything uh, like that going on. And so so you, so you, I was not deluded that President Obama was going to come in with his fist up um, saying ungao black power. I mean, I was pretty sure that he was going to be your basic center-left um, president. But I also hoped that there would be some things that he would do for the African-American community because of the time that he spent as an organizer. He spent his first term, however, trying to be centrist, trying to play the centrist game. Uh, But with, with the great exception that we must celebrate of the Affordable Care Act. And if we had stuck to calling it the Affordable Care Act and not Obamacare, we might not have the challenge that we're having now when these people are picking away at it and picking away at it and picking away at it. I just hope that their constituents, and I don't know if people saw last night or the night before on CNN, they had a gentleman who said he had never voted Republican, uh, Democrat in his life who was, had been dying of cancer, and he said Obamacare saved his life. And he said this, 20 million more people have Health insurance because of President Obama. But again, the challenge with the president was his sequencing and his thinking. He spent so much political capital on health care that there was really not much left to deal with things like jobs. And although hindsight is 2020, if you look backwards, if he'd done jobs first and then health care, more people would have been eating better and might have done better with their voting in 2010. When he lost both the House and the, you know, he lost the House, not the Senate. And so by losing the House, he basically, he lost the ability to do anything. And of course, we know what Mitch McConnell said. We're going to block everything he does. We want, our goal is to make sure he's a one-term president. Now, understand, we're at the beginning of a recession. Your goal is not to get, to prevent people from losing their homes. Your goal is not to have more people fed. Your goal is not to create more jobs. Your goal is to get rid of the president. And now these people turn around and say, well, now it's our turn and we want a Supreme Court nominee and we want them now. After Mr. Garland has been waiting for 11 months. But we want ours now. So this is something of a contradiction. But going back to the contrast that I want us to just think about as we talk about Dr. King is a contrast between Dr. King's birthday in 2009. I said national spirits were very high. Collectively, national spirits were high. Even people who were not Obamites, people who loved President Obama, were hopeful. They thought, you know, what did he say? Yes, we can. They thought, well, maybe he will. Now, many of us are extremely dispirited. I went to the therapist the other day. I did. I'm not shamed. The more people went to the therapist, there would not be all these cray-cray people running around shooting. Um, But I went because I had just been feeling despondent like something was on me, and she said, um, well, she said a bunch of stuff that y'all don't need to know, and and then she said that there they had had a group of doctors at GW, which is where I go, George Washington Hospital, and they were talking about this election-related stress syndrome. And she said people, a lot of people were seeing patients who had elective election-related stress syndrome. She said, "You think you might have that?" I said, "Or oh, something else, you know, pre-murderous presidential syndrome." Uh, but in any case, it's, you know, people are not as hopeful. Even the people who supported Mr. Trump, it seems to me, are worried about things like employment because he said he was gonna create jobs. Remember, he's the best job creator that God ever created. Direct quote. I ain't make that up. Um, so he's talked about jobs but people have not seen. I know union people who did vote for Trump. I wish they hadn't told me that. I would never look at them the same way again. People should keep some things to themselves. Um, but in any case, but now they're worried about the nominee for labor secretary. They say, he can't do that. Well, uh, yeah, he can do pretty much what he wants to, as we see. And so you could, if you contrast the moves, there are some people who are exuberant. There are some. But there are many who are worried. They're, the reaction from white women, especially, to the Women's March, to create a Women's March, is interesting to me. Because the majority of white women voted for Mr. Trump. Um, now, my horrible, and forgive me if I'm politically incorrect, which I am about 75% of the time, uh, I think I had a little meltdown on Roland Martin show. And I said, yeah, they voted for him because they sleep with him. And the men are whispering in their ear, Trump, 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 and the subconscious. I actually did this on television. I mean, I just like melted down. I'm like, "This what was I don't understand why they did that. I, because they sleep with him. <laughs> That's all, you know. But um, why ever they did it what Hillary didn't get, we expected that she would lose the um, non-college educated white women. But we expected she would lose them narrowly. Instead, 68% of non-college educated women went for Trump. And we expected that she would carry college educated white women widely. And she didn't. 51% of college educated white women voted for Hillary, but 46% voted for Trump. So, The numbers are not approximately equal at all, but if you had a bigger turnout from those women, from college-educated white women, for Hillary, she might have won. But there are lots of ways she might have won, and that's really not the point. The point is, because it's over, Um, the point is really to look at, at this moment, how we celebrate, in this context, Dr. Martin Luther King, and using... Um, basically those two endpoints as an example, it makes sense just to think about what the national mood was in 2009 and what it is now. Now how do we celebrate Dr. King in a time where people are feeling a significant amount of despair? Um, I think that we remember what he said about progress. He said, human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step toward the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. So he wasn't giving up. He got this, you know, he's also talked about the arc of justice, the moral arc bending, you know, toward righteousness. So he understood that we don't, it's not a straight line, that it's a, it's a crooked line and he, you know, he never ceased to grow. One of the other things about him that was fascinating, someone put on Facebook this morning, yes, I fool with Facebook, but I'm going to stop. I don't do much. I put little um, stuff, political insights, pictures of me with famous people, stuff like that. Um, But anyway, in 1961, President John Kennedy invited Martin Luther King to his inauguration, offered him a great seating, and actually made a big deal out of it. He really wanted him to come. Dr. King declined. Um, he didn't want to come. Dr. King wasn't so sure about President Kennedy. Um, President Kennedy had done, made a great gesture when he called Alabama to help get Dr. King out of jail, when Coretta was completely frightened that something would happen to him. But his tep- his conversations in the 1960 election, uh, uh, President Kennedys, were tepid around issues of race. He never came out as a race champion. I mean, he was aware. But if we were, uh, Brother Mitchell here, I hope you all know who this gentleman is, Mike Mitchell, who's just amazing, and he was sharing history with us upstairs at the uh, Henderson Collection. And one of the things that you said several times, you said, oh, these were big Republicans. These were black Republicans. But before 1960, most black people were Republicans. You know, my grandmother was a Republican. She wasn't this kind of Republican. She's spinning now. Um, I mean, she paid me. Well, she didn't pay. Me. She gave me some money when I was uh, when I first voted in 1972 to vote Republican. I took the money and bought a lovely sweater. Um, she said, "Did you vote Republican?" I said, "Well, ma'am, I thought that I had a right to privacy in my vote." She said, "You gonna have the right to give me that sweater back?" I said, "Oh well." But in any case. Um, Dr. King wasn't feeling JFK so much. He grew to feel him, and to feel Johnson even more. But at the beginning, it was like, eh. Two weeks after President Kennedy was inaugurated, Dr. King gave a speech that talked about ways that Kennedy could use his legislative, executive, and moral authority to diminish racial discrimination. So really, he turned down the invitation to go to the inauguration, and then he basically publicly scolded the incoming president. He closed his um, he shared the um, speech with President Kennedy, and he closed the speech by quoting from a line in a report that the President's Commission on Civil Rights issued in 1947 under President Truman. And the line was this, The United States is not so strong, the final triumph of the, domestic, the democratic ideal not so inevitable that we can ignore what the world thinks of us and of our record. Repeat that. The United States is not so strong, the final triumph of the democratic ideal not so inevitable that we can ignore what the world thinks of us or our record. Now, this was in a period when we reveled in our exceptionalism. We reveled in the fact that we thought we as America were great. And what these folks in this report basically said is we not that great. World opinion still matters. And I'll tell you, during the Free South Africa movement, um, I was responsible for the passage of some legislation in San Francisco, Proposition J. I actually thought I was going to be a politician at one point in time, but my mouth is too big. Um, I flunked recess when I was in kindergarten because I don't play. Um, and diplomacy, tactic diplomacy, just kind of elude me. So. Um, So if you say what you think all the time, you tick a lot of people off. Um, Some of my students from Bennett are here, uh, from when I was president of Bennett College. I was in trouble at that school just about every day, wasn't I? There was some trustee that was mad at something I either said or did. Just about every day. Dr. Malvo, did you call, uh, what they say? Did you call Mitt Romney an idiot? Remember Yvonne Johnson, my board chair? Dr. Malvo, she had a real deep accent. Did you call Mitt Romney an idiot? And I said, ma'am, it's totally within the realm of possibility. (laughs) I didn't say yes. I didn't say no. I just said, I wish you wouldn't do things like that. When the other board members call me, I have to tell them that I'm going to call you and scold you. And I don't like doing that. I said, well, then don't. (laughs) You want to come over and have a glass of wine or something? She'll be there in 15 minutes. (laughs) But she had to go through the motions of making sure that I scolded her. I told her. You know, but in any case, I really actually wanted very much to be a politician. I wasn't going to be that really great at it. But um, Proposition J was the initiative to divest San Francisco pension funds from companies doing business in South Africa. And when they gave us a long list of letters, they said, "What letter do you want?" Duh, we'll take J um, after me. So I would say that was my that was essentially my proposition. Um, but we, the thing about that. Prop J story, the reason I bring it up and when I talk about the world um, thinking our record, we were uh, boycotting the South African embassy in San Francisco for weeks. And one day, Ambassador came out and he apparently had read up on us. I was a professor at the time at San Francisco State University. And so he read up on us and he knew people's names. And he said, how do you justify boycotting me when you have the same kind of apartheid here? This was like 1984. You have the same kind of apartheid here that we have in South Africa. So I, you, know, you straighten up and you like smack. Now, of course, we've never been as bad. No, well, that's not true. Um, in contemporary times, we haven't been as bad as South Africa. But there are frightening parallels. So while we go around the world talking about making the world safe for democracy, we do voter suppression in the United States. And we would have to ask ourselves the question as we celebrate the life of Dr. King, where would Dr. King be with all this? Well, he was really clear about what his priorities are. So his legacy doesn't change. His legacy doesn't change. The fact is that we simply have strayed away from it. The first thing that he engaged with as a public leader was racism and anti-racism work. His, His debut onto the public national stage was around the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, and the rhetoric that he brought to the table around the bus boycott. Interestingly, as he worked with the bus boycott and was, in, was incarcerated, with the letter from the Birmingham jail and other things, he learned that poor whites could be as bad off as poor blacks. In fact, he writes about having been incarcerated and talking to the jailers. And they started, after they sort of got through all, they used enough N-words and they got exhausted of using the N-word. I mean, after all, it's not multisyllabic. I mean, it just shows your limitations. The more you use it, the sillier you sound. Um, But they, they began to have some exchange of ideas. And the guards were telling Dr. King how poorly they were paid, how little time they had off, and how their conditions of work were very variable. And Dr. King said to them, you're as bad off as Negroes are. You need to be working with us. Now, if we look at those, what were they, working class white folks who purportedly were the Trump base, Donald Trump was not going to invite them to Mar-a-Lago to have a beer. You know, his grandchildren are not going to play with their grandchildren. I mean, he talked to the working class guy in his language, but meanwhile, you see this parade of billionaires. I mean, who would have ever thought that Ben Carson would be the poorest person on the cabinet? with a net worth of $35 million. Trump changed for billionaires. But in any case, the racism work led Dr. King to talk more and learn more about poverty. And so when he was dying, as in his dying, well, not, that, not when he was dying, but a year before his death, he organized a Poor People's Campaign. And the Poor People's Campaign was an absolute act of creative disruption. Here was the thought with the Poor People's Campaign. We're gonna get all these people who are at the margins of society and bring them to the feet of our nation's leaders. We're gonna have them sit at HUD, at the Department of Education. We're gonna have them sit at the Department of the Interior, at every government department, and make demands. We're gonna bring them unwashed, we're gonna bring them unruly, and they are just gonna sit there. Poor um, accommodations were made for people they, the tent city was a hot monkey mess. Uh, of course, Dr. King by then had to have, was deceased, but no one is saying that the march would have gone any better had he been living. It might have gone a little bit better, but not necessarily a lot more. You had thousands of people who had come. Despite the people organized themselves, and this is important to think about, people organized themselves into groups of 50 or 100 had a mayor. They met in council. They talked about what was going on. They organized to cook. They organized to clean, to try to keep the area somewhat clean, at least. These were folks, these are ordinary folks who basically wanted to bring their demands to the federal government, to the seat of power, as he put it, to bring us to the... I mean, we've had March before. The March on Washington, however, was mired in the politics of respectability. I mean, even um, John Lewis was told he couldn't give the speech that he was gonna give. They edited his speech. Um, and I hope he got, got a few lines in there. Um, but they edited his speech. They wanted it to be, They want, this was the first time that you were gonna see Negroes, as we were called in 1963, um, in mass in Washington. People were frightened at what would happen, because of course the stereotype of us is that we were so disorderly, we didn't know how to act. That you could going have Negroes, and I guess we'd be barbecuing on the White House lawn. Or, uh, you know, that's my humor, or not. But, uh, but that we, we would be uprising or doing something like that. And it was very orderly, and it was very civil. But this was the opposite. This was disorderly and incivil and designed to bring demands. And so this, was, this is what Dr. King's last days were about he went to Memphis with the garbage workers. It was his second trip to Memphis. And when he went to Memphis, the second time he went, he really didn't want to go. The garbage workers were not super organized. Um, there were some challenges. And as they were going on strike, you had the more respectable black people saying, y'all don't go, you know, you always have this faction, but you know, where, where do we go from here? What are we, what are we gonna do? These people, well, why don't we just wait? Why don't we just, it's going to get better. Why don't we just wait? Well, it wasn't going to get better. White men who are garbage workers made $1.65 an hour. Black men who are garbage workers made $0.95 an hour. That's why these black men were walking around with these signs that said, I am a man. And whenever I see those signs, I say, it's like something in me breaks, that someone has to assert their human dignity because it's not there. They were out. One of the reasons they were out, the garbage equipment The differences in working conditions were not only in pay. When it was rainy or nasty outside, white men got to work inside, black men did not work and did not get paid. So they were expecting to work a 40-hour week, no accommodation was made for them, but accommodation was made for the white men. The trucks and equipment that the black men used was in disrepair, and much more disrepair, than the trucks and equipment that the white men used, to the point that, and I learned this the hard hard way. I have to do everything experimentally. Uh, so when I went to the underground railroad, I had to like go into the hole, and then someone had they had to get a thing to get me out because my heel broke going down there, and then I couldn't get back up. So they had to put a thing on me, and then a and then had to get a winch and pull me up. That was really horrible. But you know, experimentally, you just have to. Sometimes you just have to know. So how I learned about bad garbage equipment is by jumping on it. Um, there are these garbage things called bailers and you basically if you put a bunch of cardboard in then you have to jump on it to get it down. And the bailer in Memphis that the black men use cut a man's leg off. And because he didn't see hospital he see doctors on time, he eventually he died and his widow was given nothing in terms of any kind of workman's comp because the black men didn't have the same kind of benefits that the white men had. Now, like I said, see, I, in order for me to understand the bail, I had to get in a garbage truck and jump. I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, learning about it, I won't do that again either. Um, but in any case, so that, that was what was going on in Memphis. And Dr. King was there, but he didn't want to go because there was a, a ragtag group of more radical folks who had planned to disrupt anything that King did because at that time, 1968, People didn't see Dr. King as a race redeemer. They saw him as a radical, because he had moved from looking at race and looking at poverty to also looking at militarism. When he first burst onto the scene, he got foundation grants, people loved him. He got the Nobel Peace Prize. When he began to talk about the Vietnam War, the grants began to dry up. People would say to him, why don't you just worry about race? You don't have to worry about all of this. But he saw the connections. He called them the triple evils. He saw the connections between race and poverty and war. In a a predatory capitalist society, basically war is really about the extraction of surplus values from somebody else's country. That's really what it's about. And so that was what he was protesting. Protesting seeing white and black men going to fight, but then coming back to unequal conditions. And so the Poor People's Campaign, absolutely brilliant, set the stage actually for his murder because he went back to Memphis to work with the garbage workers, even though he didn't want to. If you go to the King Center and look at his schedules during this time period, it's amazing. He was doing two and three speeches a day. He was getting off a plane in L.A. to go speak to preachers and his, the group of actors and actresses who supported him at the time, and then he'd get back on a plane and go back to Atlanta and do something literally the next morning. I mean, he was running himself because he felt so strongly that this Poor People's Campaign was extremely important. And he felt that the con- connecting the triple evils Connecting the triple evils and getting people to see the connection between the triple evils would yield the kind of social change and, that we needed. I mean, he, he was ultimately and always optimistic. Um, but obviously, he was, he was murdered, and we have taken his words and used them for inspiration, but then we have not used them as a roadmap. And that's what they, they need to be for us as a roadmap. Dr. King talked about in, in, in um, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos, Our Community, his last book. He talked about federal policy towards race and towards economic justice being piecemeal and pygmy. Piecemeal and pygmy. And if we think about, people always talk about the war on poverty was a failure. No, the war on poverty was underfunded. I mean, we never fully funded, and uh, LBJ was quite eloquent when he described the War on Vietnam and the War on Poverty when he said, it's like having to leave uh, the mistress you love to go home to the wife you don't like very much anymore. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that's the term he used. He saw the War on Poverty as the mistress he loved and the Vietnam War as the wife he didn't like that much anymore. Now, I probably shouldn't repeat that because there's all kind of feminist things you can say about that. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting example because it really talks about how torn he was. Uh, about having to shut down, and never shut down, but really fund, defund parts of the war on poverty so that he could fund the growing escalation in Vietnam. Dr. King talked about the ways that the war on poverty had failed, and, in, and where do we go from here? He says, the poor are too often dismissed as inferior or incompetent. And that is something, that's a characterization that we still see today. When you see members of Congress go to the floor of Congress, pull out a Bible, and say that Thessalonians, I think it's Thessalonians something, anyway, says something that you don't get to eat unless you work. Well, that's taken way out of context. And we do know that Matthew 40 said, that what you do for the least of these, you do for me. So I think some of those members of Congress could need a new prayer book. Um, well, yeah, now I'm told that somebody doesn't read, so never mind. Um Last year, on dr king 's birthday, interestingly and parenthetically uh, mr what 's his name spoke at Liberty University. as you know, all of his speeches are very self reverential. At his speech at Liberty University, he actually said the two two greatest books ever written were the Bible and his book, The Art of the Deal. Uh, (laughs) This was said on Dr. King's birthday. In his speech, he mentions Dr. King like three times, and he basically talks about how wonderful he is. Um, None of us are surprised. The eloquence that Dr. King brings to dealing with the issue of poverty, uh, and where do we uh, go from here, is per, is seen in this passage the curse of poverty has no justification in our age it is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism at the dawn of civilization when men ate each other because they had not yet learned to take the food from the soil or to consume the abundant animal life around them the time has come for us to civilize he said ourselves to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Now, unfortunately, what we saw during the Great Recession was that poverty rates rose to the point that 1 in 7 Americans was poor. It's gone down now, so we're at 13.7% poverty, so it's not 1 in 7, but it's not as low as 1 in 8. It's someplace between 7 and 8. Um, but we, did see, we saw poverty drop in 2015, and that's a blessing. Black poverty dropped as well, but still roughly 24% of the African-American population lives in poverty. And 40% of black children. And so we did very little about poverty alleviation during the Great Recession. Many would argue that the president had his hands tied, especially by a a recalcitrant Congress. But I would also argue that the first two years of the Obama years were squandered years. Because he had the whole Senate, he had the whole House of Representatives, and he didn't use it. Uh, he has grown immensely, and I still tell folks, every time I see him sort of swagger on an Air Force One, you know how some black men, they, like, they, they get the show one shoulder is way lower than the other one? They sort of slide, you know. Every time he did, I was like, yes, it just was so cool. Um, and I voted for him twice and so would we'll do it again. But I'm not going to get caught up in symbolism. I also want Substance. And in terms of the terms and conditions of poor people, they have not gotten better. Indeed, the same kind of bifurcation we see among whites is now being seen among African-Americans. During the Great Recession years, the number of African-Americans who earn more than $200,000 a year went up. So now 2.1% of all African-American households earn $200,000 a year or more, compared to roughly 7% of all white households. At the bottom, however, you're still looking at more than a third earning less than $25,000 a year. So, and with white households, that's much, much, much lower. So you're really looking at a situation where within the African-American community, there's a kind of bifurcation that suggests that political capital saying that you're black and therefore da-da-da is used to benefit the upper middle class who does not necessarily advocate for the working class or the lower middle class. And that becomes one of the disconnects that one would have to think that Dr. King would begin to talk about, would begin to talk about, would clearly talk about. What he talked about a lot was structure. When the four little girls were killed, he said, we want to know about these murders, but we also want to know what kind of society created this murderer. That's the same question we could ask today about Dylan Roof. You know the boy is a dyed-in-the-wool racist. He's not even sorry. But how did a 20-year-old white guy get to be such a dyed-in-the-wool racist? What kind of signals is our society sending him to get that way? See, I don't mind old racists. I run into old racists all the time. If you're 75 and you racist, that's all right. You're not gonna be around long. And our paths will not frequently cross. But if you're under 40 and you're a dyed in the wool racist, I'm really worried because you're going to be around a while. you know. And I passed Mike Cross. I'll tell you something funny that happened to me one time, and it just illustrated that. I was in Mississippi. My mom is from Mississippi. My dad is from New Orleans. You could tell by the last name. And um, I'm getting it. This was pre 911. And I actually, interestingly, passed crossed again. But the older white woman who was just too old to be traveling by herself, kept dropping stuff. She had all these little bundles. You know how old people have bundles? She had all these little bundles and she dropped a bundle and then she'd been down to pick it up and then the other bundle would fall. I'm sitting in a plane and looking out and I see her and my mom's a gerontologist. I said, you know, somebody needs to help that lady. So I got up and I helped her. I put her stuff in there, I put it overhead, Just went back and sat in my first class seat, minding my business the flight attendant comes to me and she's a woman of about my age. And she says, uh, the lady back there wants to give you this tip and she wants to know if you do housework. And I'm thinking, I don't even do my own, but the woman was about my age. Now the little old lady, I was like, she a little old lady. That flight attendant, I went and told the pilot. I said, you need to do something with this woman. I said, because she's out of order. I said, when well, she sees me sitting here in first class, she knows good and you know what well that I do not do day's work. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, you know, I don't know if she was trying to be funny. She wasn't trying to be funny. It was her kind of let me put this sister in her place. And um, you know, I acted so ugly, they started to throw me out the flight. But I said, well, did I write about this. And then they said, well, okay. So they they switched the flight attendants out and got another one because. This is when they have more flight attendants, too. But, um, you know, I, like I said, I don't mind an old racist. But a young racist is a problem. So structure, Dr. King wondered, how do we get these racists? You know, and because he always say, the law will not make you love me, but it will keep you from lynching me. So that was one of his great lies, because people always say, why do we have to have legislation? Because if it's against the law and there are penalties attached to it, you're not going to do it. You know, so when lynching is illegal, people lynch significantly less. I mean, there still have been what could be quasi lynchings. So the same analysis about structure extends to conversations about the economy. So that in where do we go from here, Dr. King asks. He says, there are 40 million poor people in America. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of society produces 40 million poor people? And when you ask that question, you have to ask about the very nature, he said, of the economy. He said, now, you know, who owns the oil? Who owns the iron ore? If the world is two-thirds water, why should we pay water bills? Now, I do not advise you to send that to the water company. They will not respond affirmatively. (laughs) But I would advise you to think about, water is going to become, as you see in Flint, as you see in something like 10 of our largest public school system, water is about to become an extraordinarily scarce resource. And so many of our schools have pipes with lead. And the, oh, Baltimore is too? And so so this is, you know, he's raising a resource allocation question that's an important resource allocation question that really does speak to, as he said, the very structure of our society. So, people are comfortable. And, you know, one of the other things he said that that I love, and I'll quote and then uh, connect the dots, he said that he was almost more afraid of white liberals than he was of the KKK. He said, because the liberals are the ones who will say to you, I get your point, but I don't like your tactics. And look at the number of progressives who have talked about Black Lives Matter in that context. Oh, yeah, they're right, but I don't like their tactics. Or it's inconvenient, you know, when they block the streets. It's inconvenient for them to block the streets. Well, it's inconvenient to get killed. It's extremely inconvenient to have been Eric Garner or a member of his family. Or, you know, Tamir Rice or... Any of the, you know, there's a role that we now call. We know it by heart, but we don't know all the names. And so, you know, again, just looking at issues of structure is is really where King was going. And when you look at structure, see, people get real uncomfortable. People are not uncomfortable when you say, put a few more dollars in a food stamp program. They're not uncomfortable when you say, we need a black head of the whatever, fill in the blank. We've never had a black head of the blah, blah, and we need one. People are not uncomfortable with that. They're uncomfortable when you say, what is wrong with this structure? They're uncomfortable when they have to wait in traffic for 15 minutes because young people are making a point. Now, my baby sister and some of my sores laid across the BART tracks in San Francisco with Black Lives Matter. So they called me and they said, Julian, people see you as a leader. So you should come and speak at the rally. I said, see, so y'all want me to get on a plane, come to Oakland, speak at the rally. And you can lay on the railroad tracks with us, too. I said, that's all right. I said, see, I'm over 60. So there's just some things I don't do anymore. Railroad tracks will be one of them. And they said, she said, it would be such an example. I said, well, if you guarantee me that there are going to be four dudes under 40 and fine, who are gonna pull me off the railroad tracks, then I promise I will come and lay on the railroad tracks. They said, oh, we can't promise you all that. I oh well, oh well. But I mean, but and what they did, they disrupted BART for hours, and people were very angry, but it's important. Our discomfort has to be a, a shared discomfort. And those of us who don't lay on tracks anymore have to patiently explain to those who say, "Oh, well, I just don't agree with your tactics that these tactics are tactics born out of desperation. Dr. King, even as he saw urban uprisings that are sometimes called riots, even as he saw these urban uprisings and he talked about nonviolence, he also talked about context. So in that context, he always said, so why are these young men, because it was usually young men, rioting? What are they doing out here and why? And he went back and talked about things like joblessness, you know, Hopelessness, lack of education, and really raise those issues. So, you know, I keep coming back. But when we celebrate Dr. King, we're really celebrating a revolutionary. We're not celebrating this Kumbaya guy who has been sanitized by our vision of him as swaying and singing "We Shall Overcome." The, yes, he's saying "We Shall Overcome," but the "We Shall Overcome." Has a word that needs to be replaced. As opposed to saying someday, we need to say today. Because when we say someday, we don't put a date on it. See, when IRS sends me a bill, they tell me that it's due on April 15th. They don't say you owe us someday. You know, I mean, I really wish they would. I, it would be so convenient. But no, they say, and if we don't get it, we come to get you and your stuff. You know, when, when, well, when I was a professor. You say then I mean, you don't tell your students, "I need your final paper someday." You know, your paper has to come in by this day or you flunk it. And so we put deadlines on things that we care about, but we don't put deadlines on freedom. We say we're going to be free someday. And then we get make it real pitiful, someday, eh, eh eh eh, you know. And the challenge with that is if we say today, At some level, we're challenging ourselves as we sing the song to say, what have I done for freedom someday? What have I done for freedom today? We have to, if we want to celebrate Dr. King, we have to look at what he said he believed in and ask ourselves if we have the same beliefs. Look at what he said he identified with and ask if we identify with the same things. He said once, I choose to identify with the underprivileged. I choose to give my life for the hungry. I choose to give my life for those who have been left out of the sunlight of opportunity. This is the way I'm going. If it means suffering, I'm going that way. If it means dying for them, I'm going that way. Because I heard a voice saying, do something for others. This is how he deliberately aligned himself. He has a brilliant speech in which he talks about the drum major instinct. And he talks about how if everybody is getting a Cadillac, he used a Cadillac. Back, back in the day, that's what they wanted. Now people want Jaguars and uh, whatever. But he said everybody. so you, the drum major instinct is to want what other people want, to behave the way other people behave, to want to belong to the organizations they belong to. He talked about fraternities in particular. And he said, but if I want to be known as a drum major for anything, I want to be known as a drum major for justice. So he talked about the crowd instinct, but said sometimes you have to pull yourself Out of the crowd instinct. And so that was the thing that we must celebrate in King is that despite the fact that he had your basic middle class black credentials, he went to Morehouse. He had a Ph.D. from BU. Are you a Morehouse man too? You know, you can't tell, you can tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. Uh, (laughs) Interesting learning curve, those Morehouse men. Uh, (laughs) But in any case, um, but Bob Franklin's my dear friend. He was your president, wasn't he? Yeah, that's my brother. Um, but in any case, he, 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 he had the mainstream, middle class credentials, but he chose to identify with the forces of creative disruption. He made a choice to step out of the mainstream, and he didn't care. It would have been as easy as anything for him to stick with race and leave out militarism. It, in fact, many would have preferred it. People like to take African-American leaders and put them in a box and say, you're going to deal with race and only race. But race doesn't stand by itself. It correlates with poverty. It correlates with class. It correlates with militarism. It correlates with our federal budget. It very much reminds me of when uh, Jimmy Carter had his commission on the status of women and Bella Abzug chaired it and eventually quit. Uh, Carter became incensed when Bella, Congresswoman Abzug from New York, actually, um, opined about the war situation and the number of dollars that were going to war. And he said to her, you need to stick to women's issues. And her response was, but every issue is a woman's issue. And indeed it is. And in the same sense, I mean, there are lots of folks who will tell you the environment is not a a black issue. But we drink water. So it is a black issue. And so attempting to take King and say, you can only talk about race It took him enormous courage then to say, no, every issue. He didn't say it in Bella's terms, but implicitly did. All these issues are black issues. And what I'm about is about freedom. And the other thing that he, of course, was about was audacity. When he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, he said, I have the audacity to believe that people everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, peace and freedom for their spirits. That is an economic plan. Three meals a day for their bodies, while we still have people who are food insecure. Education and culture for their minds. While we have a Department of Education that has been very challenging under President Obama and is about to get worse so under Ms. DeVos, who never went to a public school, never sent her children to a public school, and has made contributions to about 20 of the senators who are going to vote on her confirmation. So just, just saying, just saying. So we talk about education. We've got a lot of work to do there. And peace and freedom, we still have people who are fighting. We just sent major troops to Turkey. We did a major deployment to Turkey. So we're not talking about moving toward peace. We're talking about moving away from peace. Although, again, I think that the um, agreement that President Obama made with Iran is good because at least they won't be building nuclear weapons in the short and medium run. Now... What's never mind, um, never mind, <laughs> we're not going to go there. We're talking about Dr. King here, okay? So, so the, the Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech is, is a blueprint, and we have to look at it as a blueprint. So this is a good time, indeed a great time, to think about, pray about, and celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King, because we're not really just celebrating the man, we're celebrating a movement, we're celebrating a temerity we're celebrating an audacity, and we're celebrating someone who truly embraced the whole notion of creative disruption. What happened since Dr. King died? Too many black leaders learned how to color within the lines. Um, and, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, just learn how to color. So, so people are. Too ex- people are afraid. Under President Obama, certainly, African-American leaders were afraid to say anything disruptive because they wanted to be invited back. And it's sort of like, you know, they people were so happy to be there that they really did not do analysis. Um, many members of Congress who are personal friends would be scathing privately and then publicly say, well, Malvo, you can't say that. You know, we have a black president. I love our black president. I wanted him to do better. He's a B-plus president. I want him to be an A-plus president. That's just my, that was my expectation and my hope, but the coloring between the lines under Obama will not serve us well under Trump. When President Obama cut historically black colleges and universities, which he did, um, people—I was a college president then—and I, I was livid and popped off quite a bit about it. And my colleagues are saying, "Well, if you keep talking about this, they're going to cut money for it." I said, "No, they ain't." Um, I got something for them. Um and they did. And I did a few things and actually was able to get a nice piece of change to build some new buildings. But the fact is that people were afraid. People don't respect fear, you know, but people were afraid to speak up. So now if Mr. Trump decides that he wants to cut HBCUs, and he does it, and we fuss, he has every reason to say, well, y'all didn't fuss when President Obama did this, why are y'all fussing at me? You know, we, so we teach people how to treat us, and we teach people what we're willing to take. And there was a time when anti-racist, anti-militarist, anti-poverty folks were not willing to take a lot of stuff. Now people too easily want to go along to get along. If we celebrate Dr. King, we have to reject the spirit of deja vu Reject the spirit of go, to lo- or go along to get along and embrace the spirit of creative disruption and revolution. Now, Dr. King, you know, I, I, I would recommend that y'all read Where Do We Go From Here, either the speech or the book. It's literally brilliant. There's just so much in it that just pops out um, and makes you think about the way the world works. and makes you think about not only your personal decisions, but also about many of your policy decisions, how and where you align. I would close by simply talking about what Dr. King often said um, when he talks about greatness. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't need to have your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know the theory of thermonuclear dynamics to serve. What you need, he said, was a heart filled with grace and a soul filled with love. So as much as I would claim Dr. King as an economist, which I often do, just to get preachers mad, um, and we knew knew that he was, of course, a brilliant preacher, he was a leader, but I would claim him mostly or call him mostly a humanist, who celebrated that which is resilient in the human spirit, that which is unbreakable in the human spirit, that which is of hope and optimism in the human spirit. And you would note that both he, he, his student, Reverend Jackson, and President Obama use the word hope quite freely. Because despite all of the political machinations that we go through, whether we have an Obama presidency, a Trump presidency, or any other presidency, the fact is that the only way that the forces against equality prevail is when those who like freedom, who want freedom, are prepared to fight for it, and we have to have hope in order to fight. Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor, Dr. King said. It must be demanded by the oppressed. That's the blueprint that he laid out there, and the question for all of us is whether that's a blueprint that we're willing to follow. If we are, we keep the dream alive, no matter who is in the White House. What we must know is that electoral politics is a necessary condition for ameliorating negativity for ameliorating wrongs. But it's not a sufficient condition. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So even as we encourage people to vote, even as we fight voter suppression, at the same time, we have to look at the politics is not everything. It's not the be all and the end all. We have to look at economic structures when we look at fairness. We have to look at education when we look at fairness. And that's really what Dr. King has said to us when he talked about creative disruption. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. We have time for some questions or conversation. I know who's in charge, but I know we have time for questions. Any? Sister Mm-hmm. What's It's more than time to deal—we need to emulate the Tea Party and start looking at state and local elections as much as we've looked at national elections. Americans treat politics like it's a football, a basketball, a seasonal sport. So every four years we get all caught and bothered about who the president is going to be. Well, see, had we been paying attention, the Tea Party took the Congress in 2010. And they didn't start in 2010. They started in 2008. As soon as President Obama was elected, those folks, Michelle Bachman, you call the roll, they started organizing. So the question is, who's going to start organizing and and organizing in what way? Not only for state legislatures and for state senate seats, but also at, at the local level for mayors, for city council seats, for boards of education where we really need progressive people. I mean, the state of Texas has a book about happy slaves. Happy slaves. This was going to be the textbook for the state of Texas. Um, and the State Board of Education approved it. And, of course, there's no African American on that board. Texas is heavily Republican. But nobody ran. The other piece of it is that nobody ran. So young, I would, students, young people, start. Politics is not a dirty word. It's not everything, but it's something. Start getting ready to run for office. And Run in posses, run four and five and six of y'all because everybody's not going to make it, and everybody's not going to stick with it, but get get to running. I, I think that's the, I think the most important thing I think the second most important thing is so and the Tea Party did this too to look at voting rules in your jurisdiction. In other words, voter suppression only happened because people look at voting rules and figured out ways to exclude people. The Supreme Court even said that um, North Carolina had excluded. African-Americans, their words were with surgical precision, with surgical precision. Uh, they figured out ways to um, limit the number of early voting days, limit the, um, the number of sites. And I was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, because um, I spent a little time there. And so the Hillary campaign sent me down to do churches. And I always tell them the church is going to fall if you send me to do the church. But praise the Lord, one has not fallen yet. Um, And, you know, they give you five minutes in the church to say something. So I ran into some folks I knew from my Bennett days, and I ran into this brother, and I said to him, so you're going to early vote, right? And he said, no. I said, why not? He said, in 2012, they had eight early voting sites in Winston-Salem. Now they have one. I said, okay. I said, but you could go to that one. He said, well, actually, I can't. I said, why not? He said, guess where it is. I couldn't guess. It was at the courthouse. So brother said he had warrants. Because he had back tickets and unpaid child support. I said, I don't think the police are, like, explicitly looking for you. He said, no. He said, but if they see me, they will arrest me, and I'm not going to the courthouse. So I said, well, when are you going to vote? He said he was going to vote on Election Day because there would be more polling places, but he had to be able to vote before 9 a.m. because then he had to go to work. So I called him just kind of following up. He didn't vote. He stood in line for two and a half hours, and he didn't get in, so he didn't vote. So we, th- th- that stuff, people are not doing that right in the election year. They're doing it the year before and the year before that. So that's something that people need to be on now. What are the election rules, et cetera? And, so again, that, I, I just think if we emulate the Tea Party, they use their losses to electrify them. Now, heretofore, with post-election stress syndrome, et cetera, some of our, us are using these losses to immobilize us. But they ought to really be energizing us to say, we, we, can, we can fight back from this. And, you know, the, and we must have more conversations with millennials. But I don't know about these youngins. I really don't. This young lady told me she didn't like Hillary. She you don't have to like her. She's not coming to your house, you know. She doesn't want to eat any of your beans and rice, you know. Just vote for her. You don't have to like her, you know. People, they weren't excited. I told, I've been voting since 1972. I've been excited to vote four times exactly in my life. When Reverend Jackson was on a ballot and I ran for public office, when Reverend Jackson was on a ballot and I didn't run for public office, but I was a Jackson delegate, both times that President Obama was on the ballot. I wasn't excited about Bill Clinton and Al Gore. I called them double bubba back in the day. Two, two Southern white boys were like, they can't win, but they did. Um, I wasn't excited about Dukakis or John Kerry, although I, bo- I, worked, I worked with both of them, but I wasn't excited about them. So this notion of young people that they need to be excited is odd to me. Um, this is not the movies, you know. But we don't teach civic in high schools anymore. And so young folks don't necessarily understand the political process the way they should. And so if we have more people on school boards, we might be able to talk about something like teaching more civics. And if not, you know, 17-year-olds um, can be talked to through churches, through clubs and organizations about what role they play, you know, in the political process so that when they turn 18, you know, they can vote and participate and be excited about the process, not necessarily the people. But those are just a couple of things. hmm It is. Slavery
2: is a choice, a millennial. And I said, How could she possibly, possibly? But here again,
3: somebody is
2: rewriting history. Our history for us. And our young people are absorbing this and trying to make it fact.
3: So those are some things that I've been running into. Slavery was a choice. Hmm. Oh, Lord have mercy. Um, Reverend Bill Barber, who Many of you will remember from the Democratic Convention, um, he spoke uh, brilliantly. His he has a book out called "The Third, Reconstru- the Third Reconstruction," and he basically talks this, some of the same points. And when people talk about what, how horrible this man is likely to be, I start thinking about Woodrow Wilson. And the reason I start thinking about Woodrow Wilson, you actually had African American people in the civil service in Washington D.C. until Woodrow Wilson became president. Then he literally and systematically eliminated black people from supervisory positions in the civil service, despite the fact that you have all these civil service laws that prevent that from happening. Now you see the Republican Congress saying that Congress can go in and just eliminate somebody's job and or reduce their salary to a dollar. It's literally the same kind of, and they've, I don't know if they've passed this or not, but they've discussed it already. Uh, so it's the same kind of arbitrary and capricious thing because the guy who's the head of the ethics office has made a comment about Mr. Trump, now they want to investigate the ethics office and perhaps get rid of it. So it's, it, I, I like the analogy of the Reconstruction, but I also would think of it as a... It's a its a triumph, again, of predatory capitalism. I think it, Mr. Trump reinforces every negative about capitalism that exists. And the when you start... When your resistance to the fight for 15 is a labor secretary who says he can't see the minimum wage being anything more than $9 an hour. Because, after all, it has to work for business, too. Now, this is someone who's banked, again, billions of dollars in the fast food industry. But he just can't see the minimum wage being any more than $9 an hour. Um, We basically are looking at a a paradigm of thinking about what wages people deserve— around what kind of profits business people deserve as opposed to what kind of fair and humane treatment that people deserve. So, As I said, I like your analogy. You might check out Reverend Barber's book. He's powerful, powerful, powerful. I've got two young ladies here from Bennett College for Women. Uh, Yusha Statish was the president of the NAACP and worked with um, Reverend Barber when she was a student. And uh, this young lady is her little sister at Bennett. They have a, we have a tradition of big sisters and little sisters. Remind me of your name, dear? Okay. And you're from? Very good. Very good. Okay. So I just want to acknowledge them as they were here. Sir? Can you say something about how to support education so that social justice? How to support education? One of the things we know for sure is that Head Start is an effective program. But we don't have enough money, even under President Obama, we had, even under the Clintons who care deeply about this, we don't have enough money for every child who's eligible to go to a Head Start to actually go. So we've usually had enough money for about half of the kids who want to be in Head Start to go. What we know about Head Start is that if students go to Head Start, and you test them even in the second grade, they're doing better than students who did not go to Head Start. That's one. The second thing I think we really do have to do is look at now this is not gonna happen anytime soon, although well it should, look at the school year and what it looks like. Why do we have the summer off? You used to have the summer off because you were like picking cotton or something. Yeah, we have, you, it was fun, but we don't have, you know, we don't have all that. Because what we know is that there's knowledge loss in the summers. And so, parents who can afford for their kids to have access to these summer programs, et cetera, don't see the knowledge loss. But in many poor households, regardless of race, the teenage child is going to be charged with watching the younger children, as opposed to participating in an educational program. So we have to figure out ways to have more educational programs that are non-classroom programs, and that happen at non-traditional times. We have to pay as much attention to that K-12 pipeline as we do to higher education. Much of my work has been around higher education issues, and um, as a professor, as a college president, et cetera. But the fact is that if students don't come prepared at the higher ed point, we're really essentially institutionalizing um, mediocrity. If young people are not able to come to college prepared, they're going to spend an extra year. The average student now is spending more than four years. It's like 4.5. But 4.5 doesn't mean it's not horrible. But I always tell students, your goal is to get out of school in four years. Your goal is not to be hanging around because you're having fun. Because that, that fun is costing your parents, or you, if you're taking out loans, money. So we, we really need to make sure that students are better prepared. And then we need to support, you know, why our college presidents, back in the day, we used to be intellectual leaders. Now our main job is fundraising. We spend 50, 70% of our time dialing for dollars or riding airplanes for dollars. And that suggests that we basically don't value education you know, as much as we should. And so that becomes you know, basically another uh, data point. With, with our K-12 schools, we have to look at physical plan. Do you know how many schools are older than me? More than 20% of our nation's schools are older than 60 years old. These schools, are, when I travel, I usually um, go in, if I can, depending on my schedule. I try to go in like a day before so I can pop into high schools and hang out and figure out what the culture is because I just want to pop in and speak and, you know, don't know what's going on. But I also like to go to high schools. Well, I went to this high school in a city that will be unnamed, and they assigned me to a young lady who was a senior, and she carried me around. And she was having a good time, but she was, she was hooking me up with water. She kept giving me bottles of water, so I'm drinking bottles of water. And uh, at some point I said, you know, i got to use the restroom. And she said, well, you have to wait. I said, honey, I'm over 60. See, there's one thing you never pass by at a certain age, and that's a restroom. You know, nature calls you go. And she said, well, I can't let you go to the student bathroom. We have to go to the other building. I said, no, it's like this. Got to go, got to go, got to go right now. So she took me to the student bathroom, extremely embarrassed. Three of the five stalls did not have doors. She went into her little purse to hand me toilet tissue because there was no toilet tissue. She handed me some sheets of toilet tissue and said, there's not going to be any in the bathroom. And I kept, she said, see why you don't. Um, but what does that say to that child? We don't care about you. None of us, nobody in this room would go to work where the people that you work for didn't care enough about your comfort to make sure you have working bathrooms. But that's how our kids go to school. So there, there's so many things. Money isn't all of it, but money is a lot of it. People always say, don't, we don't need to throw money at education. Money would make a big difference, especially in some of our inner city schools. Some of these schools still don't have uh, working wireless for the students. It works for the teachers but not for the students, Uh, the ratios of students to computers can vary to as many as one computer for 10 students. Some of our schools don't have librarians. There's a senior high school in Newark, New Jersey that has one counselor for 900 seniors, one counselor. So just who's getting any attention and how? And so amazingly, I mean, I connected with this woman because she's a soror of mine, and I started doing a sort of online thing with her, which I don't do anymore because I just don't have time, but where I was connecting her with other people to help them counsel their students because half of her young people were trying to go to the military because it was a job. And some of them had not been done enough work to get into the military, they couldn't pass a military multiple choice test. So, again, sir, I I would just say money is a huge thing, but also school volunteers. If people are as individuals looking, school volunteers are really important. If you have a business, bringing high school students in as interns and paying them a few pennies more than the minimum wage is important because some of them need to see exposure to the workplace. They really haven't. So there are just a bazillion things. But thank you for the question. That's one of my passions. Oh yeah, saw that. Yeah. So I always tell since there's plenty of money. The question is who makes the decision about how to allocate the money? I think Mal um Michael Moore's latest film does that, which yeah. would Invade Nest. You know, that No, you're absolutely right. Sir, at the back. It's a problem that's not going to get solved in the next four years because, really, we're looking at the tax code. And the, much of the inequality is codified in the tax code. I mean, as just a minor example, those of us who own homes have the benefit of the mortgage deduction, our mortgage interest deduction. Um, but probably 25% of white households and 55% of black households do not own their homes. So you're taking large slices of population, they're paying rent every month, but they don't get the benefit of that, basically, that home ownership deduction. That's a real simple one. Uh, how did Donald Trump not pay taxes for 20 years? There's a law that passed that allowed that to happen. to allowed people to defer their losses over a 20-year period. And so, you know, he got rewarded for being a, a, for being a business failure, frankly. Um so so the tax code is something that we don't in in progressive circles we don't talk about enough, and the tax code would begin to address some of the income inequality that we see. Otherwise we're doing what Dr. King said and talking about pygmies, you know, and, and peanuts. We're just doing the snipping away. But the the amount of wealth that we see is just literally a function of the tax codes that that have been written. So Like I said, with the Republican Congress, they seem to always want to give billionaires uh, tax cuts and raise taxes for everybody else or cut services and cut whatever is in social service. And I think that more of us progressives need to pay attention to the tax code and start raising the questions in ways that highlight the contradictions.
0: Oh, yeah. put yeah. economic plan uh, like I think what are saying sort of speaks to that, you know, first the revenues and then how we allocate resources they actually had a plan on
3: both sides and the congressional black caucus until the early 90s used to produce an alternative budget that talked about human needs and they haven't done that you know, in some time again learning how to color in the lines and learning how to do that which is acceptable <laughs> you've been doing things right, and if you don't have money, well, you don't fault. And, and this is the level of spirituality that our president elect is trying to do. It's you. How much God loves you is is, is reflected how much uh, economic wealth, uh, wealth you have. Uh mm-hmm. challenge that we're equal to though oh, I think so, but
1: I just, it
3: just no the the observation is right on time especially when you look at what Dr. King said he believed I choose to identify with the underprivileged <coughs> Trump doesn't choose to do that I mean it's the opposite you know he's as, as opposed to Dr. King said I heard a voice say do something for others Mr. Trump heard a voice say do something for me myself and I you know, I mean, there's no sense of service or pub- of public consciousness. So it's, it is it is going to be a challenge. But the worst part of it is this. People keep hoping that he's going to be impeached. Mike Pence is Donald Trump went to charm school. And, you know, because he doesn't grab and he doesn't, you know, want to build a wall. He just very stealth stealthily, you know, has eroded the rights in Indiana of G- the GBLTQ population. Um supports voter suppression, any number of other things. So we have a rough road to hold, but it's holdable. But thank you for the observation. Well, thank you all for the questions and for your attention.